Hello and welcome to episode 5 of The Amp, the regular podcast from Ampere Analysis bringing you the latest business insights, talking points and research from industry experts in the global media landscape. In this episode, Research Director Guy Bisson sits down with Ed Border, Daniel Gadher and Toby Hollera. We go through how premium video demand is impacting theatrical, AT&T's Q1 financial results and their implications for the wider industry, and how both streaming services and broadcasters globally are adapting to the lockdown. You can subscribe to The Amp on Acast or find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts. To keep up to date with the latest industry analysis, stay ahead of the curve with The Amp Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ampere Analysis' regular podcast. This week, we're going to be diving into detail on a number of topics. I'll be speaking to colleagues Ed Border about premium video on demand and what it means for the future of the theatrical window. Daniel Gadher has been doing a dive into the financial results of AT&T, one of the first major companies to report Q1 information and seeing what we can learn about the future of an industry hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. And finally, I'll be speaking to Toby Holloran, who's been looking at some of the numbers returning from SVOD services and other entertainment companies about the uptick in consumption they are seeing under lockdown. First of all, we're going to talk PVOD, yet another acronym that has entered our lexicon within the media industry. Premium VOD is the release of movies straight to on demand, bypassing the theatrical window at a relatively high price point. Much discussion in the industry as theatres and cinemas are shut down about what this means for the wider industry, particularly around the future of studio strategies distributing to the theatrical window. Ed's been doing some pretty unique research in terms of looking at what that impact might be. So, Ed, one of the things that you looked at in your research was predicting box office for some of the releases that have gone into the PVOD window and bypassed theatrical. Tell us a little bit about how you went about that. Yeah, of course. So we've had a few different ways we've tried to look at this in the past. And what we've settled on is uh, looking at YouTube trailer views. So for each title that's currently uh, in schedule and, and has been put on, on premium VOD, we've effectively looked at how many different YouTube trailer views it's had all across the world in the build up to launch and use that as a predictive factor, um, which we can then try to predict total global box office from. We did this prediction by then pulling the actual data from 2019 and comparing that with known box office revenue. And we found that in general, that's correct to within about an 85 to 90 percent window on the sort of expected box office returns. So this allows us to then start to actually make predictions on what different titles would have received roughly at box office in 2020. Great. So you took that box office and, and you looked at banding, I think, and, and how that related back to the strategy that had been deployed for titles. What did you find there? Well, when we sort of compared the expected box offices that we got back from our model and we compared that to what's actually been released on Premium VOD, we sort of found that there were three different categories that 
came to mind, I suppose. Uh, the first was uh, sort of for the largest box office titles, for those that were expected to really make a lot of money globally, over about $700 million. We found that they are not being released on Pivot. This includes titles like Wonder Woman 1984 or the latest Bond movie, No Time to Die. Uh, in general, for those, they, they've been held back and sort of scheduled for release at a later point in 2020, when, fingers crossed, cinemas will be open. Uh, we then found a middle category of titles that were expected to receive between about $400 million and $700, $750. And we found mixed results here. Some titles, particularly those that were children or family oriented, have gone to premium VOD, while others have been delayed or, or paused. So in that range, it seems like companies aren't quite sure which strategies to employ and are trialing out premium VOD. And then finally, we found that pretty much every major studio release that was expected to get in the 100 to 300 million range was just put straight to PVOD directly. Okay, so I'm, I'm not sure if it should be the million dollar or the billion dollar question, but I guess that question is, is PVOD a, a strong alternative to theatrical? So I think it's got to probably be looked at in two different ways. I think in the short term, uh, definitely. I mean, you know, theatrical is one of the sort of pretty much the strongest window in terms of money gains per sort of week available for content. And with the current shortfall in theatrical titles available due to the pandemic, it makes sense for studios to look to use a lot of their assets and PVODs are a quite viable method of doing that. And I think it's been proven um, in the last couple of weeks. Obviously, the other thing to bear in mind on that is that there will be a rush in titles available later in the year when a lot of the big hits will come out consecutively as well. So it can make sense to use some of your smaller titles now. Uh, I think in the longer term, though, it depends a lot on the title. So one big factor, obviously, we mentioned is size, that the largest releases are generally being held back. But also size matters in terms of where in the world. One of the things we found out in our research is that while in, say, the US, the transactional market, so digital online retail of titles is large, um, almost 50% of global revenues are in markets where the transactional video on demand is very low. Uh, so Brazil, China, Russia, uh, Mexico um, and India. And that revenue really doesn't translate naturally to PVOD. So for titles that are expected to have a big global audience, such as, say, Disney's Mulan, it, it really wouldn't make sense to move to PVOD. And I think the final factor that sort of comes into play is genre. So as I mentioned, we found that kids and family titles were more likely to go on PVOD. And our consumer research kind of showed that up. Uh, it showed that amongst those homes that both watch cinema and also buy video online, they're more than 40% likely to have young children in the house. So for titles that appeal to that audience, it, it really is a sweet spot for potentially selling them premium VOD titles. Interesting. So there was a report in the Wall Street Journal this week that suggested that Universal has actually made more money from the PVOD release of Trolls World Tour than the uh, previous movie made to its theatrical window in the US. What's going on there? Well, that was, that was a really interesting story, actually. So the first thing I guess to say is that the figures do stack up. So just for context, the original Trolls movie made just over $150 million in the US, while Trolls World Tour, it was reported by, by NBC to have made pretty much $100 million. So obviously that is slightly less, but the key thing to consider is the cut that the studio will make of that money. While it varies for cinema, in general, the largest studios make about 50% domestically of, of the box office income. So of that $150 million for Trolls, NBC would really only see about $75 million. Meanwhile, for transactional, it's typically between about 75 to 80%. So again, of that $100 million, NBC is seeing about $80 million of that. So while the Trolls World Tour may not quite have made the same overall gross revenue, uh, it's actually potentially being more profitable for NBC. And that, that was what their press release was about. 
Um, I think there are a few sort of points to consider that might just slightly uh, reign in excitement over that, however, uh, while it is quite big news. The first is that it's quite likely that Trolls World Tour would have exceeded Trolls in, in the US box office. Uh, our predictions based off the YouTube trailer views anticipated that Trolls World Tour was likely to make between 100 and 200 million extra worldwide at box office prior to launch. Uh, secondly, also based on the YouTube previews, we saw that there was definitely a real sort of first move about for Trolls World Tour based on being the first title to go to Pivot. We saw a really unusual spike in the number of YouTube trailer views in the uh, couple of weeks leading up to Pivot release that we don't usually see for other titles. So I think by being the first to try this new method, they've got a big publicity boost and potentially quite a big audience boost as well. And then finally, the figures showed equate to about 5 million rentals in the US. So Trials World Tour was purchased by about 5 million homes. That's that's quite high. So that, that's a very impressive kind of audience boost. Uh, to put it in context, that's about the equivalent of the largest sort of physical uh, DVD or Blu-ray disc title sold last year as well. So for other titles, it's unlikely that they'd be able to achieve many more sales than this uh, via PVOD. So there are a few factors also to bear in mind before it's it's all purely positive. One of the uh, interesting things I've seen this week is studios, I guess, almost tripping over themselves to to say how much they support the theatrical window. And as you say, we've seen a number of their bigger releases delayed rather than bypass that window. But what other factors have have you looked at that that might indicate the long-term survival of theatrical? Well, I think the first thing to say is that whether we, we call it theatrical or not, I suppose there will always be a demand for a sort of a, a first window that takes advantage of the recency of a piece of content. Um, so something close to theatrical will, will likely exist regardless. I think that from a, a cinema perspective, uh, one big factor will be the impact of the pandemic in terms of sort of, you know, when cinemas can effectively get back to normal operations. Uh, it's likely, uh, and our, our sort of team expects that we will see some closures um, with the sort of number of cinemas that have, that have had to close down temporarily. We, we think that will long term lead to some cinema chains closing down um, and also even in the sort of medium term once cinemas reopen it's likely that social distancing laws will will sort of mean that they have a reduced audience for sort of movies and that will obviously impact the bottom line in the sort of short to midterm um, so so there is that factor sort of before they can reduce uh, regular operations i think then um the main thing i suppose that really comes out of it is that there's not a sort of one size fits all um sort of a one-size-fits-all response for different titles. We'll find that uh, for the sort of biggest titles, cinema likely makes sense as the most effective way of maximising revenue. But what we're now seeing is some alternatives spring up for sort of medium-sized and, and slightly smaller releases, perhaps, where sort of studios actually have a credible alternative to make potentially even more revenue than they would have done via cinema. Um, one of these is PVOD. Another is straight to SVOD. So Disney recently put Artemis Fowl straight to uh, Disney Plus rather than launching it in cinema or waiting or putting it on premium VOD. Um, and these sort of alternatives can potentially sort of drive competition to theatrical that perhaps didn't exist. And I think what we'll then see is studios looking to use the leverage that PVOD gives them to potentially pressure theatrical chains into giving them a greater share um, of those sort of box office receipts longer term. So rather than perhaps settling for 50%, trying to push that number up, getting it closer to the 70 or 80% that they would make from transactional. Interesting stuff. I mean, it's it's certainly uh, in a phase of disruption by the sound of it, like every other aspect and window within the entertainment value chain. Thanks very much for that, Ed. Thank you. Um, 
da- Daniel, you, you've been taking a deep dive into uh, AT&T this week and um, interesting for a, for a number of reasons. Uh, one, it's one of the first major companies to report Q1 financials out of the US. But I guess more importantly, they have a business that spans multiple sectors um, and thus is going to be differentially impacted by COVID-19. Let's, um, let's start, of course, with some positives. Where, where are they seeing growth in their uh, business and sector? Yeah, you're exactly right there, Guy. And they have a variety of business lines. And I think the one to concentrate from a positive standpoint will be some of their communication sectors, uh, which has shown uh, resilience to the current crisis. Uh, one aspect is fiber broadband. So high-speed broadband is up by over 200,000 subscribers this quarter. Uh, and that has also uh, led to higher revenues as well as this higher value uh, customer is, is is subscribing. As well as broadband, we see a similar story with uh, its mobile businesses, consumer mobile business, with postpaid subscribers, again, higher value, uh, up by 27,000. So these are the areas where we can start to see some of that growth. And actually, this growth in these areas is supporting some of its other businesses as well, which is another positive uh, for AT&T. Uh, so the o- ongoing revenue growth in these areas has allowed ANT to offset its investment in uh, its upcoming launch of HBO Max, for example. Um, so these are the, the positive areas. Okay. And what about the negatives? We, we we have to face up to some, I'm sure. So the negative impact for at and is, is clearly seen in some of the business units within its uh, Warner Media division. Firstly, it's linear broadcasting network, Turner. Uh, seen a significant downturn in advertising revenues. Now, this is something that we were expecting to see uh, throughout the TV advertising sector, and, and the AT&T results gives us our first look at that, uh, with advertising revenues down 24% uh, from the same time last year. Part of this is due to sports broadcasting, so they lost uh, some of that broadcasting there, including uh, the, NCAA double, uh, the NCAA tournament basketball tournament, which was uh, cancelled. Uh, so they're seeing advertising revenue losses there. The other negative impact, and we've touched upon this already in this podcast, is is in the theatrical side. The business is also feeling the full effects of the lockdown measures here with cinemas shut uh, in many markets. This revenue has declined by 26% uh, from the same time last year as well. And considering this is only uh, sort of a month at the end of the quarter, I think we'll see this continue, these trends continue as, as the lockdown has been in place in Q2. One of the other aspects of AT&T's business, of course, is pay TV. Now, the U.S. market in particular has suffered major structural changes, particularly hit around cord cutting. But I would have thought at least that under lockdown with people watching more TV, um, there might be an uptick in that area. Have you seen any indication of that? So across the sector in the US, we have seen viewership up. Uh, That includes the pay TV operators as well as subscription OTT. But the underlying problems for the pay TV sector remain, and we are seeing consistent uh, declines in pay TV subscribers. AT&T themselves lost just over 900,000 subscribers across their pay TV operations. Uh, And a lot of this is now becoming a case of how can we, how can AT&T retain uh, customers. Extensive free access initiatives for content uh, channels as well as premium channels has been given, uh, but the underlying difficulties around high cost pay TV, especially in an environment like we're in, where economic hardships are hitting households, the high cost of pay TV in the US is forcing many households to rethink that as well. 
So you're, you're going to be keeping an eye on the, the results as they come out this quarter. Um, given what you've seen in AT&T and of the companies that are due to report imminently, um, who are the winners going to be? I think the winners are, we've seen this already from the Netflix results as well, are the, the viewerships and the uptake from those subscription OTT platforms. Now, it's not just the Netflixes and the Amazons of the world who are, who are in that area now. So we can see that Disney Plus, uh, up close to 50 million subscribers, alongside some of the newer ones, may benefit from this increased viewership, increased subscribers. And also from a content side, we're seeing that many of the subscription OTT platforms have longer lead times in their productions, so their schedules aren't as effective as some of the broadcasters. That being said, we've already seen it from the Turner results. The advertising uh, sector is being heavily hit, so linear TV broadcasters who depend on the advertising revenues are going to be hardest hit uh, with, with advertising falling off there. Well, I guess the, the, the one commonality is that no one can wait until this lockdown is finally over. We are all looking forward to the day when we're allowed out and to interact um, with our entertainment and with each other, that's for sure. Thanks, thanks for that, Daniel. Toby, um, one of the things you've been looking at this week is that uptick that Daniel mentioned there in terms of uh, viewing and TV consumption during lockdown. That That seems to be one of the areas that's benefited most but in terms of companies where uh, is that benefit being seen well um the besides the obvious which is the tv dinner manufacturers um we also have benefits so um particularly in the us where there's an increasing battle for eyeballs we're seeing some um, quite ag- aggressive offers which um are shifting away from which the kind of lengths they usually would so quibi has recently launched with a 90-day free trial and recently announced 2.7 million downloads. Um, we've got Showtime, who extended their free trial from one um, from one week to one month, and that's already seen a 148% increase in new signups in a four-week period recently. Stars similarly has reduced their their OTT subscription service from $9 a month to $5 a month, and that's seen 142% increase in new signups. So generally, there is a, certainly an uptick. And as Daniel said earlier regarding Netflix. They more than doubled their expectation for new signups to 15.8 million paid net additions in Q1 alone. So we're seeing benefit across uh, customer sign-up, customer acquisition, also consumption. There's a lot of talk out there about streaming services in particular. You mentioned Netflix, Stars, and others, but is there any evidence that other uh, actors within the uh, TV space are benefiting? Well, um, yes, there, there is certainly. Like, for example, in the Middle East, we've got the um, the kind of pan-regional broadcaster, NBC, and they've got their own streaming service, Shahid, and that's seen a particular uptick, which they announced in March. So there's been an 80% increase in viewing across their um, ad-funded platform and a 100% increase in subscriptions for its subscription platform, which not only removes ads, but also has a selection of exclusive and very small selection of original content on there as well. In addition, um, so someone at ITV, even before the lockdown in the UK really started to take place, they saw some record viewing figures for their um, daytime airing. So um, on one Wednesday in March, they actually hit higher figures, which were higher than they'd seen on a Wednesday since Christmas 2013 for daytime viewing. So that's between nine o'clock in the morning and 6 p.m. 
and also Sky. So um, Sky is increasingly trying to digitize its customer base. So um, looking at some of the stats from their Sky Q boxes, they're actually seeing quite a lot of increased uptake for Sky box sets, which is which are available through subscriptions. And so they're seeing 28, a 28% increase in viewing across Sky box sets and a large ramp up in also accessing apps such as all four ITV Hub, Netflix and YouTube through their boxes as well. One of the commonalities about lockdown is that regardless of your age, you are stuck at home right now. Is is there any evidence that uh, this is impacting viewing behavior differently across the demographics? Well, one particular area is um, so young people, especially in the 16 to 34 age group, are increasingly shifting away from linear. However, um, the operators are reporting that that's actually some of these viewers are actually shifting back. So, for example, Sky, um, who I mentioned previously, they, they, they've reported that 16 to 34 year olds are watching 45% more television at the moment, which equates to an extra 85 minutes per day. And even ITV is suggesting a massive increase in that demographic, particularly around morning shows such as um, Good Morning Britain, as well as general generally finding a source of news. But then again, um, on the other side, we're also seeing older demographics are increasingly moving towards subscription video on demand services as well. So in our consumer waves, we, we've been seeing a raise in the 45 to 64 age bracket from around 40% of that group subscribing to a subscription video on demand service up to closer to 70% now. And we expect that during this lockdown period, that acceleration may increase even more. Okay. Netflix this quarter, of course, has record customer additions, nearly 16 million uh, new subscribers. But I thought it was interesting in their commentary that they felt it necessary to mention a cloud on the horizon. And that is that after lockdown, when people are finally allowed out, they actually expect a backlash against television and for TV to decline at a greater rate than it would otherwise have done. In terms of the strategies that you've been seeing being deployed this quarter to capture new audience, is there anything out there that perhaps can be done to mitigate that backlash in the future? Well, if, if we look at Netflix as an example, so um, one, of, one of the issues is while short term, there won't be much of a difference in the kind of content available on the platform, long term, off the back of things like um, productions being halted, for example, shows like The Witcher, in the long term, there will be a bit of an impact there. So um, what Netflix has said they're doing is as a result of the money they're kind of saving currently due to productions being halted, they're going to then invest that into licensing content to ensure that their viewers have a consistent source of new things. But of course, in um, in terms of general content, there's always a risk of reaching a, a sort of fatigue. So we're already seeing kind of saturation around how many subscription services consumers are willing to take, particularly in more established markets such as the US. So there's certainly a risk. However, content such as sport, which quite a lot of consumers are currently being deprived of, operators which have a kind of mix of that are able to kind of fill the gap now and bring back sport later on. So I think it's, in, it's all about ensuring that consumers are still getting new content within a relatively short time frame. Otherwise, they, they might get bored of the services, especially as they begin going outside more and more as lockdowns are reduced. Thanks, Toby. One of the things I've certainly picked up on this week is that in the news reporting out there about COVID and entertainment, people are beginning to think about end, an end to lockdown and how the industry will be reshaping itself as, as we begin to look to that end in sight. I think what we can conclude from what we've heard today is that there's positives and there's negatives out there um, and that at least is 
some sort of silver lining to the cloud that are facing the industry at the moment. So thank you very much. I've been speaking to Ed Border, Daniel Gatter and Toby Holloran. And that is Ampere Analysis regular podcast. Thank you for listening.